I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Mexican-American makeup artist Yadim Carranza began his career at the MAC counter in his native San Diego. Having joined the MAC Pro team, Yadim moved to New York City in 2006. Shortly after, he became the first assistant to Pat McGrath before embarking on his solo career in 2011. His notoriety grew rapidly, and through collaborations with photographers Matt and Marcus, Inez and Venude, Yadim firmly established himself as a beauty renegade who defies expectations with his sui-generous approach to makeup. Yadim, welcome in my chair. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Quinn. We got through that bio. <laughs> it's funny, all the names I like know and I read them, but I just never hear them out loud. So it's like, I don't know how to say it. And then they're foreigners. So I was like, oh, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I've been wanting to have you on this show kind of since I began. And I'm, it's like all, a couple people who I've been thinking about having on. It was awesome that you and a couple other people like Paul Cavaco and all others yeah. like just happened. So thank you. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, you've had some really incredible people on, so that's awesome. Thanks. Do you know, um, I've met you before. Um, really? We doing, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's all legit. Um, so you're friends with Darian. Yes. Very okay. dear friends. And way back in the day, like probably 2006, we okay. were doing some um, charity event. I don't remember what it was for, but there were just a ton of makeup artists. And Darian and I were like body painting on a, she was like a trans stripper, this beautiful woman. And then you were there oh. doing some kind of body art stuff. I think we all like smoked was it- during the break. <laughs> probably. It sounds like me. Was it um, with Jani Fonseca? You know, so I like at, a, no at, a, at a nightclub. I really have no. It was at a nightclub. Yes, I think I know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! So that was Crazy. that was the first time we met, and you were not the Yadim that you are now. But I already knew you had <laughs> something. You were like, you know, super cool. Um, Thank you. And then, so I knew who you were. And then one day, my partner goes, "Oh, Quinn, there's a makeup artist in the Times today." And I go over there and I'm like, oh, my, oh, that's Yadim. Like I had known you from like Mac and I think you worked at Makeup Forever and I just knew yeah. who you were and I knew you were friends with Darian. So I was like, oh my God, this bitch made it. Like this is legit. <laughs> I was like, wow, I was a little bit jealous, but mostly happy. Um, so anyway, here we are. Um, when, so you grew up in San Diego, which is like a, a largely like conservative city, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. California, I mean, especially San Diego, is actually a bit more conservative than I think we let on. <laughs> um, but I grew up in a very like Mexican American neighborhood. There was a lot of Mexican Americans and Filipino Americans in my neighborhood, and I, I grew up very close to the border to Tijuana, to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so the area I grew up in, I felt like was you know, there was definitely a culture around it. And, um, and while there, there is definitely a lot of conservatism in that area and even in San Diego as a whole, um, I was lucky enough to have a mother that was very willing to put up with my shenanigans. (laughs) Okay. You found, you found your people. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had a really supportive mother and, you know, when I was in high school, I went to Chula Vista High School, which is a kind of suburb of 
San Diego. And I found my people there. I found other queer kids. I found kind of rave culture and club culture at that age as well. And I feel like I was able to definitely find community through that. So were you out in school? I was. I was out from a very young age, actually. I told my mom I was gay when I was 13. Wow. Do you mind if I ask how old, how old are you now? Please. I'll be 40 this year in October. Okay. Wow. I mean, yeah. so for context, like I went to a school with 2,500 students and no one was out. Mm. So for you to come out at 13, like you were all, you were like a renegade. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely like probably one of the first of my people, my age that I knew that came out. And honestly, I came out in kind of a very like manipulative way. I had gotten really terrible grades in school that year. And my mom was in the middle of grounding me for the summer for getting such shitty grades. And my mind was just like, I have to distract her, like something to deflect. And that was the first thing that popped up. And I was just like, mom, I have to tell you something. I'm gay. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, it certainly did deflect. <laughs> but how did she take it? She at first was very quiet. Then she said, I have to go out for a drive. I'll be back. And she left for like three hours and then came back and walked into my room. And she said, um, something along the lines of like, listen, you're my son. I love you no matter what. Um, and that was that. And it was definitely a few years of her having to come to terms with it on her end. Um, there was times where it felt like she accepted it more. And there was times where she'd really kind of regressed to this very um, kind of, uh, I don't know how I would explain it. I think it was a lot of fear that she had mm -hmm. and she would allow her that fear to dictate her reactions to me or to my, what I was doing or what I was into or whatever. I remember one year in those first couple of years after I came out to her, I told her I was going to gay pride. It would have been my, it was going to be my first gay pride and here in San Diego. And I told her I'm going to go to gay pride. And she said, no, you're not. Let them hang out with their own kind. So there was definitely times where she was very resistant even though she let me know, I love you. Like that's not, that's not changing. Right. So that was important. Um, but there were definitely, it definitely was a journey to get to a place of her coming into radical acceptance of that. And, it, and that journey took a few years. I think it's really interesting that she said, uh, let them play with their own kind because she, it sounds like she was afraid of losing you. Yeah. I, I mean, I think honestly, looking back now and I've had a lot of conversations with her about this and she's a very different person now. And actually I was just having breakfast with her this morning here in San Diego. I went to her house and she cooked for me and, um, and she was showing me a video online of this dad who's like a dad of a very young queer kid. And he's posting videos about the importance of allowing your children to express themselves and to accept them. And she had a moment where she was like, she cried and she said, God, I really wish I would have gotten this earlier. You know, like she really understands now how um, how much she, you know, kind of missed an opportunity of, you know, real acceptance and connection at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a different time, too. Very different time. And I think, like I said, looking back now, I think it was it came from a lot of fear. I think it was fear of, you know, my safety, 
fear of, I also think that some parents, maybe most parents, I should say, have like an idea of the trajectory of their children's lives, have a vision for their children's lives. And Mm. when something comes in that disrupts that vision, it can be very difficult to adapt to a new vision, you know? And I think that was definitely part of it. I think she imagined that, you know, I'd get married to a woman and have kids and have kids and she had grandchildren. You know, she had this kind of whole plan for me. And when she realized that may not happen, I think it was very challenging for her. Now, was your mom from born in the states, or was she from Mexico? Or so, my mom was born in Los Angeles, and my grandparents okay. were born in Mexico. Did you grow up speaking Spanish? My language, Spanish, was my first language, but then I kind of lost it during education, during schooling, and you know, elementary and all that. I kind of lost it, and then I. But I was lucky enough; I had grandparents that were very strict that I could only speak Spanish when I was in their home. Um, and I hated it when I was younger. Like, I, it annoyed me so much because, like, I thought it was archaic. But I'm very grateful for it now because I've managed to keep a lot of my Spanish. And then much later when I lived in New York and I was living in Washington Heights, it's a largely Dominican neighborhood, and I had to speak a lot of Spanish there. And so I, I kind of got a lot of it back, and I try to practice it as often as I can. So the first line of your bio says Mexican-American makeup artist. And so I imagine that that's important to you. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's very important to me for many reasons. It's important to me to remember where I came from, to acknowledge and honor like the my ancestral lineage and like kind of, you know, what my ancestors had to do for me to be at a place now where I get to do what I'm doing, um, the privilege I have because of their struggles. But it's also important to me because... I think in Latin culture in general, like kind of the larger Latin culture, there's a lot of kind of machismo and homophobia, queerphobia, and kind of toxic masculinity that exists within Latin culture. I mean, it exists at cult- in the culture at large, but definitely in Latin culture, it's really, really prevalent. And so it's also important for me for other Mexican-American kids, um, other Latin kids, that are creatives that are coming up in you know creative industries to know that it's okay to be queer, that it's okay to express yourself and that, you know, success is possible. You know, I have to be totally honest with you. And I, I'm, I imagine a lot of white people who read it or might interpret it the same way I do. I never thought that you writing Mexican American was actually for your own people to identify and, I thought it was also a way of saying we're here too, to almost to to the greater community, to white yeah. America, being like we're here too. But it, it, so it's interesting that other side of it, hearing it, it's like of course you're saying it for people listening and you know who are Mexican and, I, and, and want to identify. And I also think that what you said is also, you know, in there somewhere for sure. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't have that so consciously, but absolutely we are here too. Yeah. So then you did go on to work at Mac. Was that the first time that you had done makeup? Yeah. You know, I was, I, I, I started playing with makeup at a very young age. I was playing with makeup. I used to love, like, this is kind of like my my white light moment with makeup is I used to love when I was a very young kid watching my mom get ready. Like that was my favorite part of the day. 
she'd always like open the bathroom door after a shower in like a pink robe and a towel wrapped around her head. And she'd have to start this whole process of beautifying herself, you know, in Mexican culture, at least in my family, the women in my family always got ready, always wore makeup. Like my grandma till the day she died, God rest her soul, like wore makeup and got dressed and put a look on every single day. My sister won't go to the mailbox without a full like look on. Like yeah. it's just something that I grew up around. And so watching my mom get herself ready, mind you, it was the eighties. There was a lot of makeup involved. What was the makeup you deem? What was the, what was the look? Like what was the lip liner? What was the lip shade? I mean, it was drag. It was basically drag. I mean, the way I, I see it now, looking back, I'm like, oh, my mom was a drag queen. <laughs> like, <and laughs> so she, lucky. She would You're so tease. fucking lucky. <laughs> my mom wears like barely mas- like barely wears foundation and mascara, and I always wanted her to have French tip nails and like a Mercedes. Yeah, she would like tease her hair up really high, and she wore like tons of like different colors on the eyes, like at the same time. Like she'd put like a blue and like a shimmer and a you know, highlight, you know, you know, all that stuff. She really kind of, she was an architect of like her face and, um, and she wore, you know, a lot of lip color and everything blusher. Like it was just the eighties, you know? So I'd watch her get ready and I was just fascinated by the whole process of it. And I maybe didn't know at the time that I was really appreciating the makeup aspect. I think at that time I just thought I liked the whole thing. She was like a Barbie doll that I just got to watch transform herself every morning um, and then my mom also at the time, like as I got a little bit older, like I was still, you know, 10, 11 years old. Um, my grandma actually was a seamstress by trade and ended up opening like a kind of bridal store and like, and then eventually moved into this kind of bridal bazaar that was like a, I don't know, kind of like a place that there was different shops and different things to, for brides to go and like address different needs of a wedding. And she ended up doing makeup there. She would so down there and do makeup and like do you know some bridal makeup and do tutorials and stuff so like this was something that i think was kind of in my blood like i just loved that she did that and um and i don't think she even thought then that you know that i would really get into makeup until i got a little bit older i remember one time we were watching i think it was oprah and kevin aquan was on the show yeah, And he was talking, you know, it was this whole, you know, thing about Kevin and the people he works with. I think he was promoting his book and there was, you know, pictures before and after pictures, all this stuff. And I just got so like excited and enamored with that. And my mom, I think, must have seen my reaction. And I think when I was like maybe 13, she bought me both Kevin Aquan books. And I obsessed over those books. Like I just poured over them and I... <laughs> would practice like the looks on my friend, on my sister, on my mom, like anyone I can get a hold of, I just practice. And mind you, this was before I even came out to my mom. So I think she already had an idea. She just didn't want to face it that I was gay. Right. Um, you know, I think she was I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, like, you know, like it, uh, let's call a spade a spade. Like yeah. <laughs> I was playing with makeup books. Um, Those books are so good. I always, I still tell people, even though some of the looks are not current, Um, some of them are that, you know, um, people starting in makeup, like get those books. They're, they're totally, everything you need to know is, is like in his books really. Very much. And he was also like, so ahead of the curve. Like he was talking about contouring before, like we knew what contouring was, you know what I mean? Like that's the, and also, I mean, I don't know if you saw his film, that that documentary. Yeah, it was so good. 
so good and just how people talked about how ahead of the, the curve he was with like selfies and video and you know all that kind of stuff like no one was doing that back then and he was just taking all this video like he would have definitely been huge you know in the- in social media he would have more followers than kim kardashian if he were still alive yeah exactly. totally <laughs> totally i remember watching that oprah episode also and just being like oh my god and and his proximity to everyone to me yeah. seemed so cool like he was so like cool. behind the scenes with all these you know like tina turner and all these people yeah. so so you went from mac and obviously they saw some talent in you do you remember who who was the customer? It was like funny. I have a lot of friends who worked at Mac, um, mm-hmm. and they would be like, "We were at Mac Herald Square, and this <laughs> was what people came in for." And so it was like the '90s, right? Yeah, I mean, no, this was uh, like 2000s already. I was okay. Doing, I'm, I was 18 when I started working there. I think I must have been like 2001, 2002. Was there still um, opalescent on the brow bone? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. 100%. Yes, that was the shroom eyeshadow on the brow bone or nylon eyeshadow on the brow bone, like for sure. That was still the a satin thing. taupe and then all of that. the yes. crease, 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 yes. crease. Okay. Crease. Yes, all of that. <laughs> and then I, I grew up right like where I, where I was living, where I was working, sorry, was in um, a mat counter in a Nordstrom in Horton Plaza here in San Diego in downtown. And because there's so many Mexican Americans here, like you had a lot of Mexican women coming in wanting a lot of makeup. So there was definitely like a lot of makeup going on. Mm-hmm. So what made you actually decide to move to New York? So it's funny. I've always been obsessed with New York. I always knew I'd end up there. Um, I, like, everyone around me knew that like, that was my plan, but it was like a, a few years away plan. And <clears throat> when I, I ended up moving I ended up opening a new Mac store in Plaza Bonita here in San Diego. Um, and I was there maybe six to seven months when I had just bought a car. I had saved up for my, my first car and it was like a used Honda Civic. And um, I was living with my mom and I, my mom was like, make sure you get full coverage insurance. And I did. And then one month I was just a little tight on money. And I was like, I'm just going to like change it to liability for this month. And next month I'll put it back to full coverage. And then my car was stolen from the front of my house that month. <laughs> and, and my mom was like, did you have full coverage? And I was like, uh, no. And she's like, well, I don't know what you're going to do. You're screwed because I'm not giving you rides anywhere. So I took the bus to work that day to Plaza Bonita. And when I got, I was so bummed. I was so upset. I was so mad at myself. And then I just like had this moment where I was like, oh, maybe this is just the universe telling me that now's the time to move to New York because you don't need a car in New York. And like, this is it. And so I literally that day talked to my manager at Mac and asked her if she would be allow me to put in a transfer for a store in New York. And she said, why don't you go online and look at what it was called, some kind of you know back office program where you can see all the different job postings. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I saw two job postings, one for... I think it was Mac Herald Square and one for the Mac Soho store. And I applied, I called both of them. I spoke to the manager at the Mac Soho store. He said, I'm actually, I said, are you hiring? He said, actually, I am hiring. We are, we are looking to fill a couple positions. He goes, we're looking to, f- to fill them very quickly. Send me your, you know, resume and your numbers from that, your store that you're at. And if you don't hear back from me in the next couple of days, just know that you didn't get the job. Let's just know, you know, whatever. So I literally heard back from him the next day and he said, can you be here in two weeks? 
And I went home and told my mom and she was probably terrified um, and also probably excited for me. And I packed up my shit and moved to New York. And it just so happened that around that time, a friend of mine that I met when I was working at Nordstrom, he was working at the fragrance counter, had moved to New York a few months prior and him and his roommate were looking to move out into a new place. And so I called him and told him I was moving there. He said, oh, we should get a three bedroom together. And so when I got to New York, I had an apartment to live in. Like I had a three bedroom to move into and I was paying you know, part of the rent there. Yeah. And it happened very quickly. So when you moved to New York, what did you know? Did you know who Pat McGrath was? Did you know who, you know, um, Stephen Mizell was? Did you know that you were, that was the goal to work I knew, in that I arena? I, I knew who I knew who Pat and Steven were. I was a Madonna fan from like birth. <laughs> and okay. so I knew Steven myself from the sex book. I knew all that stuff. I knew who Pat McGrath was, but I didn't know about their relationship so much, so closely mm-hmm. uh, until I moved to New York and I got, you know, a bit more in the industry. I started seeing, you know, what was going on and all that. So I knew who they were separately. I didn't know that they were such collaborators yet. But was your goal just to come and live in New York and work at Mac? Or were you like, I'm going to work at Mac and then use that as a stepping stone to end up working in the fashion industry? Exactly that. My my goal was to move to New York and work in the fashion trenches. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the front lines. <laughs> wow. And so I knew going into it that, like, Mac was just a stepping stone. Um, and then, I like, like you said, I ended up working for Makeup Forever afterwards. And that was also just a stepping stone. And... I actually ended up leaving Makeup Forever and I had a really good position at Makeup Forever. Like um, someone that worked for Makeup Forever came into the Max Soho store and scouted me to go work for them. And at the oh. time they were just, they were just going into all Sephora's. Like they were just doing this big kind of redistribution and like rebrand. And they were really had like a lot of like kind of, you know, more of a vision for the brand. And they were trying to kind of revamp it. And um, this woman came in who was like the manager of, you know, the U.S. And she scouted me and she said, I want you to come in for an interview. And I just didn't know what it was about. I thought, I'm only going to go if it's like more money and it's like a trainer position. And when I went, I probably was too young to have this position. But she ended up hiring me as their national education manager. Wow. And so I had to develop all the training programs for the brand in all Sephora's, like, to train the trainers, how to train the Sephora, you know, um, team members on the brand. And, um, but Yadim, why do you think you got that job? Do you think it was because of your talent, your personality, your sales numbers? Like, what was it? So I think that the woman who hired me, her name was Sally. I think she really liked me. I think she liked my personality. I think we clicked. And I also think that I just happened to be in the right place at the right time for that specific like hire. I think that it. I think that she didn't have a lot of resources, <laughs> and mm-hmm. she went out looking for someone, and she saw me, and I was like, you know, excited and passionate, and I think she just thought like I have a feeling he'll be a good fit, and so um, I got that job. I worked there for a year, um, and I was making great money. Like this is the first time that I was finally making good money. Like the first year I was in New York, I was starving. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. money I got at Mac was not enough to live in New York City. You know what I mean? And so I got that job. I'm almost finally relieved she can like breathe and like not have to send me money every couple months to help me. Um, and then, you know, I got that job. And a year later, I said, this is not what I want to do. Actually, this is not 
my vision for myself. And I was working in a corporate office. I was having to deal with all this like administrative stuff and paperwork and, you know, training material. And it just, I felt so drained by it. And I, I didn't feel passion for any of it. As much as I loved the brand and loved the people I worked with and all that, like I just knew it was my time to go. Mm-hmm. And so I, I put in my notice and I, I quit Makeup Forever. And my mom was terrified. Like she was like, are you sure this is the right move? Like you're finally, you know, self-sufficient. And I was really young. I was what, 23, 24. And I just knew I had to leave then. Otherwise, who knows how long I'd be working in that kind of environment, you know? Right. So how did you link up with uh, or get an opportunity to work for Pat? So after leaving Makeup Forever, like right, my vision in my mind was that I was going to leave Makeup Forever and that I was going to just go right, right into becoming a freelance artist all on my own and that like all these doors would open up for me and I'd be, you know, on top of the world. And So you're an optimistic person. Very much so. Maybe too, too much because that's not what happened. <laughs> And well, it did eventually. It did eventually, but not the way I thought it was going to, right? And okay. so I left there and I had a, a little money saved up and I got my own apartment. Um, uh, while I was working at Makeup Forever is when I, I was actually roommates with Darian at that time. Okay. So we were roommates for the, a little while. Then we moved out of that apartment. I got my own place up in like Harlem. And, um, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to work. And of course, like nothing came because like no one knew who I was. And, um, and so eventually I had to like actually move out of that place. I had to tell the landlord, listen, I can't afford the rent anymore. I would rather just tell you now and like leave than you know, you evict me. And he was really understanding. He was this guy named Eli, um, this like Hasidic Jewish man who was super sweet to me. And like, I think believed in me somehow. And it would just said, you I'm going to let you go without penalizing you for breaking your lease. However, I believe in you and promise me that when you make it, you will pay me the like fees you owe me and like the two months back rent you owe me. And I said, I promise. So I left there and a friend took me in and I let me stay with her for a while. And it was during that time that I met Pat. So at that time, what I was doing to try to kind of like work the circuit is me and a friend of mine um, who is now doing very well. His name is Frankie Boyd. He's another makeup artist Mm -hmm. who I met at Mac. Um, Him and I used to book our own flights to go to Milan and Paris for the shows. Mm -hmm. And we'd book our own flights. We'd stay in a hostel together and we'd email all the agencies and just like very aggressively, you know, I'm going to be in Milan. I'm, you know, looking to assist your artist. I'm available for shows, whatever. And like, you know, the first time we did that, we like, obviously did not make as much money as we put in for the ticket and the hostel and all that. But then like after a few seasons of doing that, you start to break even. And then after a few couple more seasons, you start to make a little money. And so it's like, becomes like kind of a good thing. And also you're getting your name out, right? Like you're getting on with different teams. I think for someone that's looking to assist, even today, show season is a really good time to get on someone's team because they always need extra people, right? During that time. So I, I just knew that that was my way in and the goal was always to work for Pat. And it was a very kind of, you know, elusive goal because anytime that I reached out to her booker at the time, this guy named Michael at Streeters, he would always send me back the exact same email, which was, thank you for your interest that Pat has her team. Bye. Like that was always the response I got. 
And I, but I got to work with a lot of amazing people at that time. I got to, you know, be on shows with Lucia Peroni, with Aaron DeMay, with Dick Page. I know you had him on, on this podcast. Um, I got to be on shows with Diane Kendall, like just so many incredible heroes of mine. But of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I want to get on Pat's team. I want to get on Pat's team. You know, she was doing all the biggest shows, all the best shows, still is. And I just really wanted to get in front of her. And I remember one season we were in Milan and like, I would you know, check an email every night to see, you know, what you're getting booked on and all this. And, and I got an email from Michael, Pat's booker. And he said, are you available tomorrow to do a show with Pat for D and G? Um, just doing body makeup, like just doing legs and, you know, body, you know, skin. And I said, yes, start absolutely. you slowly. Yes. Eating. And I said, yes, okay. absolutely. And so I showed up the next day, um, you know, was there and she walked by and she said, hi, I'm Pat. Nice to meet you. And the first thing she asked me, she said, can you do a face? And I said, yes. And she said, great. She gave me a model, <clears throat> did her makeup. Checked Were you nervous? Super nervous, but also I knew I was very capable. Like I knew that I knew she would like me. I knew that I would do a good job. I was very confident in my abilities. And so then what were you nervous about? I was nervous. Um, I think it's more like this is the moment, right? Like this is what I've been like waiting for. And here it is. And like, you know, this is like the dice is being rolled and like I have to perform, you know, and now it's like the rubber meets the road. So I think it was more nervous around that and also nervous around like I want her to like me because I want, I want to get on her team. Um, and, and we just hit it off. Like it was really amazing. She was super sweet and I was really quick as well, which I think she appreciated. And so I did a, a model, showed her to, showed him, showed her to Pat. And then Pat said, great, give her, give him another one. I think I ended up doing like three or four models backstage that day. Did she and ever make corrections or she was just like, great? A little bit. Yeah. I mean, she always, it's, she's always making, she's always like, oh, give her a bit more of this or a bit more of that, or she needs a little more of this or whatever. You know what I mean? But she's kind of like, that's what she does. She's the director of this like operation she's running. <laughs> um, and so I, I did, we hit it off. And at the end of the show, she came up to me and she told, her assistant that was with her make sure he's on everything this season and so i ended up doing the entire season with her i did all the shows with her in milan all the shows with her in paris what year I was ended, this this was 2007 okay or 2008 maybe somewhere in, in there um the good year really good years really good years um you know like galliano at dior like all that you know just incredible stuff and so we ended the season um in at Vuitton, that was the last show of the season. You know, Mark Jacobs is still, you know, um, designing there at the time. And and at the very end of the sh- season, I remember she came up to me and she said, it's been such a pleasure having you. And I, she gave me a hug. And then I thought, okay, cool. Maybe I'll see her next season. And when I got back to New York, I was on an absolute high. You know, I was on total cloud nine. Like, wow, I can't believe I just experienced that. And then I got to New York and I opened my laptop and I checked my email and the first email I had was from her booker again saying, are you available to work on a shoot with Pat McGrath and Steven Meisel tomorrow? And I like lost it. Like I, I think I cried. I was just like, so I couldn't believe it. And, and so I did. And I, and it, at first I'd go. So I went to the next, the next day to Pure 59 studios to assist her. And every day after that, she wouldn't like, I wouldn't get like a schedule ahead of time. At the end of the day, she'd be like, are you available tomorrow? Great. Be here tomorrow. And then I'd show up tomorrow at whatever time she told me to. And then at the end of that day, are you free tomorrow? Great. Be here tomorrow. And it was literally like that for a year. <laughs> Let me ask you something. How did the other assistants feel about that? Were they nice um, to you? 
I, I don't want to say they were nice because I think there's definitely a lot of kind of competitiveness that comes up among assistants, but um, I think they were, they were as nice as they could be. <laughs> well, for people who don't know, how many, can you set up the situation? How many yeah. assistants does Pat have and how much luggage does she have? And what, what does that look like when you get to the job? Like, yeah, I mean, at the, at the time she had maybe four or five assistants that were with her all the time. Even if it was just one model, we'd all be there together. Um, and she, we would have to go to the, to her office and grab about 30 big makeup suitcases and load them in a truck and then unload them at pier 59 in the morning. Um, obviously we didn't have to do that every morning because oftentimes there'd be shoots back to back in the same studio. So we just leave them there overnight. Um, but yeah. But I mean, what is that about Yadim? Like I get it that like she's doing things on a level that I will never understand, mm-hmm. but like also how, how could you even know what's in those bags and, and do you really need it? So, I can see how from the outside it can really look like overkill. But when I tell you that when we're on set with, when we were on set with Steven Meisel and he wanted something obscure or something, whatever, like her, her success on that day depended on her being prepared. Right. And so I understood after working with her for a while, why she had to have that. You know, like like she needs a heliotrope pressed eyeshadow with red reflex. Yeah, or whatever. Like, and, and you know, whatever it is, she needs a feather lash. She needs, you know, a vinyl cutout of a you know a mask or whatever it is. Like, she had so much materials with her, and also a lot of those books were also a library, like a reference, library, right? You know, reference materials. And she she never at the time she hadn't digitized anything. I don't know if she has now. So she hadn't digitized anything. And so everything was just like books, just picture books, art books, photography books, fashion books, makeup books, all this, you know, reference material that was very important, you know, to have for her because oftentimes, you know, the, at the level she's working on, people want some, you know, I give, I want this or I want some obscure reference and she has to be able to kind of produce that quickly. Was she nice to you? She was absolutely lovely to me. Absolutely lovely to me. And, um, and maybe there was a little bit of like um, a little bit of uh, jealousy among the assistants because I think I was the new you know kid on the block, and I was also you know kind of like she was really sweet to me and all that. So I I, I could see I can understand how other people would maybe feel threatened at first, you know. But I ended mm-hmm. up becoming really close with every all of her assistants. We all you know were in the trenches together, so it was actually ended up we all ended up getting along very well. Now, was she supportive of you when you stopped being an assistant and went on to become your own makeup artist? Um, I am not going to say she was supportive. Um, uh, It was just the end of my time with her, and I have not had any contact with her since. Let's just say that. (laughs) That's the diplomatic way to say it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I, I, I've heard that before. But I'm wondering, like, what is the expectation that you would you, that you wouldn't leave? I really can't speak on what the expectation was because it was never like said to me or anything. But like, I just maybe she thought I didn't assist her long enough. I really don't know, honestly. I, I uh-huh. you know I can't get in her head, but like, I, I do know that. 
I was in one day. And when I told her I was leaving, it was like, okay, we're done. Like we're good. And it was, and that was it. And that was, that was like, it was that simple. Was it hurtful? Was that hurtful for you? It was hurtful. Yes. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Yes. It was hurtful. It was, um, it felt, I don't think she was trying to be hurtful. You know, I don't think that was her intention. I think that she operates at a level where she's probably had so many assistants come and go throughout the years that she just has no time to like, really, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. get overly emotional about those things. But like, for me, like she was my life for those few years, you know, and, and I, and, and to this day is still one of my heroes. So it's really, you know, I, I, I would love to believe that it's possible that one day that we may chat or reconnect or run into each other and have like a normal conversation. I don't know if that's possible. I would love. I was going to ask you if you saw her at the bar at pier 59, what would you do? I would absolutely say hi to her. Hundred percent. I'd go up to her and say hi to her. Yeah, I would. I would try to talk to her. So when you left Cat, and then your career took off right away, or what? What happened after that? You know, I left her thinking that I was going to leave. I was going to take some time away from New York and go back to San Diego for like a few weeks or a month or two months and just take like some time off. I had a good amount of money saved up. I. At that time, I was now living in Washington Heights. Like, I had my own apartment up there. And I just felt really good about, like, taking a little time to myself. You know, working for her was as rewarding and incredible of an experience as it was. It was really exhausting. It really kind of drained me. And, you know, doing 40 shows a season with her, plus all the, you know, shoots and all that, it was just really, really exhausting. And I felt like I just needed some time, some downtime. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to come, like, come home and reconnect with family and, and I really, that was my plan. And then really quickly after I left her, I just started getting options. I started getting jobs. Um, and at the time I didn't have an agent. So it was all coming into my emails or like people calling me or people texting me. And, you know, at the time I was um, working with the photographer, Terry Fiolis, who was really helpful at that time. Like he got me on jobs with like French Vogue and like I met stylists through him. And then those stylists would then get me on with a photographer and then I'd get with that photographer and that photographer would get me on another job with another stylist and that stylist liked me and it just kind of mushroomed and kind of blossomed from there and um and i at first i was kind of like oh, okay there's a couple jobs coming in and then i realized oh i'm not gonna get to go home and have some downtime because obviously i had to you know jump at whatever opportunity came to me at that time and did that feel like it was happening all of a sudden or it felt like finally you know or all of the above a, a little bit of both a little bit of both. Like I was very excited and relieved that it was happening. And also it felt very quick. It felt very fast to me for sure. But I was also like, but I, 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 I was hungry for it. You know, I wanted that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I was really grateful for it, but, but yes, like maybe at the time I didn't know it was, I felt overwhelmed by it, but looking back, I can tell you that I was very overwhelmed by how quick it was happening. How did you handle success? I'll tell you this from the outside looking in, I thought, oh my God, he is the it person right now. (laughs) People want him in 10 different places. He's the cool guy. He's going to do Kenzo. He's doing all the like cool brands and this is his moment. And so I wonder what that feels like and how you handled it. If I'm really honest with you, Quinn, like looking back, I had a, there was a lot of fear. 
a lot of fear, a lot of insecurity. Um, as much as I was excited for all the work, like I really felt like it could all just leave like the next, in one day. Like I was just so terrified of losing it. And I, and I felt like I had to just really stay in the game and stay relevant. And, you know, I'm really fortunate. I had really incredible people that were supportive of me at the time. Um, you know, I, I ended up uh, meeting Emmanuel Alt and she got me on, you know, jobs with like David Sims, you know, David Nude, Nat and Marcus, like, these are, you know, photographers that I mean, I've just, you know, poured over for so many years. And then, and then Corrine Reutfeld also was very supportive. She ended up helping me get like a kind of like a subcontract. It wasn't like a main beauty contract like Peter Phillips has with Dior, but it was like a consulting contract and with Dior. And so, you know, I'm 25 years old, 25, 26 years old, maybe 26, 27. Anyway, I'm very young and suddenly have this like Dior contract where I'm helping them develop product and like, you know, do campaigns and all this stuff. And it was, you know, it was a lot at once. And, you know, I think I had a lot of insecurity and I had a lot of fear. And at the time I really knowing what I know now, I wish I could tell that kid, like chill out, like chill out, enjoy the journey. It's not about the destination. And like everything's going to be okay. Cause I didn't know at the time that everything was going to be okay. I had, I felt like I had so much to prove to myself, to other people. And did you overcompensate? Absolutely. I overcompensate. Did it, did it look like Absolutely. arrogance ever or how did that play I think out? It looked, I think it, at times it could look like arrogance. At times it, it could look maybe like, um, at times I think it can, it can look maybe snob, snobbish. Like I, I, you know, definitely. And also I overcompensated in ways that like, even my behavior at the time, like even the way I, I presented myself, my personality was not authentic. Now looking back on it, I was not being my authentic self. I was, I thought I had to be the funny guy, the guy that made it, that everyone had to like, like I really <clears throat> was trying so hard to be well liked. Um, And I, and it's really interesting Quinn, cause like, it says a lot about anyone that works in fashion, I think. And I'm, I'm and I, I don't want to sound like I'm speaking on behalf of other people, on behalf of the industry, because like that's, you know, who am I? You can. That's what we do on this show. It's fine. <laughs> but I will say, at least from my personal experience, right? Like working in fashion for me started, like the, the desire to work in it, I think came from like some deep, like wounding, like childhood wounding. Really? You know? And yeah, because I think, and, and, and you can see it also in the story of Kevin Aquan, right? Like he had this very difficult upbringing in the South where there was a lot of queer phobia, a lot of homophobia. He felt very much the outsider. And then he moved to New York to be a part of this industry that is, you know, you know, notoriously exclusive and notoriously could be kind of snobbish and superficial. And wanted to be accepted by them, you know, and by all those like huge mega stars that he ended up building these deep close relationships with. And I think a part of that was also me. Like I felt I was very much bullied in high school. I felt like the black sheep in my family for many years. I, you know, had some definite struggles with my mom accepting my sexuality and my family accepting my sexuality. And all of that, I think built up to me needing this industry to accept me and approve of me. And I think I was really just looking for approval. And did you ever feel like you got it? I 
would get it, but it was like very elusive approval. It was like, you'd get it. And for a moment you'd feel this rush of excitement and, you know, joy and whatever, but then immediately that goes away and you're looking for the next high again. So it's like a, it's like a drug. It's like a drug and it's a phantom, right? Because anytime you're, anytime that I'm seeking anything outside of myself to give me a sense of self or validation, I'm already in trouble because I'm chasing something that like the moment I get it, it loses its value because really the excitement is a chase. (laughs) And then when you get something that you've been chasing for a long time, like it just normalizes and it loses its luster. And so I realized that I didn't, I didn't have the awareness I have now of that, but I felt that right away. Like once I started, once I got to a place where I was like, Oh my God, like everything, every goal that I thought I wanted, like has come true. Now what? You know, you definitely get, I definitely got to that point where I was like, now. And that's scary, right? It's scary and it can be destabilizing. And it certainly was for me. I, um, you know, I, I had at, at the time, a few years after, you know, the time period we're talking about when I was kind of at the height of a lot of my, you know, my career, I, um, ended up like getting on with Gucci and Alessandro McKelly, like, and I got to do a, like, five or six years with him, like doing everything for Gucci, like doing all the shows, all the campaigns. Like I would, you know, I was part of that core team of doing all that. And, you know, I was in all of that and yet I was like suffering. Like I was really miserable to be honest, not because of the work, but because I was not in a good place within myself. And, and I started, you know, kind of escaping myself by partying a lot at first and going out all the time. And I just, like I, it, my life was literally two different things and I only switched between these two worlds. It was like partying and drinking and drugs or working. And I had nothing else in my life that gave my life meaning, but those two things. And that's a very dangerous place for me to be because, um, you know, eventually like the partying, the drugs, all that just took over my life completely. To the point that it interfered with your work. A hundred percent. Yes. It interfered with my work and, um, I mean, it interfered with my work in many ways. It started off slowly interfering with my work. Like I'd be really late to a job or, you know, I, whatever, like, you know, little things like that. Um, but eventually like I was using at work, like I would literally go to the bathroom at work to get high and come back out and like work. Like I, at at some point I just needed to keep using to feel normal, like just to function. Um, and I, yeah. And I, and I was just really lighting up a candle at both ends for a good five years there. Can you say what you were doing? Yeah, I was using meth. Yeah. And and I, and I and I and I and I've never said that before like like you know in, to anyone. <laughs> I mean, I said that before personally to people in this, in this industry, but never on this kind of platform. And I mm-hmm. say that because uh, the reason I say that is because I think that meth is an epidemic in the gay queer community. And I think it's something that needs to be talked about and addressed. And so I have no qualms about talking about it. Why is it a gay drug? And not saying it's just a gay drug, but why is it so prevalent in the gay community? I mean, it's definitely not just a gay drug, but I think that it is a drug that um, is used by a lot of gay men because of its kind of inhibitive properties. Like it can make you very sexually uninhibited or disinhibiting properties, sorry make you very um, sexually uninhibited. It can make you very, feel very powerful. 
I also think that it really is like a drug that really, um, I don't want to say caters to, but like addresses a very core wound for a lot of gay men, which is self-acceptance and rejection and approval and feeling beautiful and feeling sexy. And it's a drug that could really make you feel all those things immediately, very quickly. And, um, and so, you know, I started using that and I, I, mind you, I am someone that like, I, my entire life thought I'll never try heroin or meth. Like those were my two bottom line boundaries. Like Mm -hmm. I'll never try that. And like, you know, I've done drugs since I was younger. I used to go to rave and had a great time and it was never like a problem. You know, it was like, I knew I time to put it away and get serious. And like, I could do that. But I was dating a guy at the time when I was starting to party a lot, like a lot of going out all the time, like drinking a ton, doing a bunch of cocaine, doing a, you know, extra, whatever was around, I was doing it. Um, and I had been offered meth before and always was like, nope, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm, that's not my thing. And I started dating a guy um, who, who, I, who I ended up trying it with my, my first time. And I, I tried it with him because I knew I, I ended up finding out that he was using it once in a while. Like he wasn't like an everyday user, but he was like a every few weeks user. And I found out that he was using it and he would leave for a few days and like go, you know, do that and come back and, I just felt like, well, maybe if I use it with him, he won't leave. Like maybe if I just use it with him, it'll bond, it'll be like a bonding experience. And, and I thought I'll try it once and just see what it's about. And, uh, you know, I just, was that like one of the worst mistakes you ever made? Because when you try it once, you're like, I can never stop. Or it, it was a gradual thing. I looking, okay. Where I am now, Quinn, looking back, it was probably one of the best things I ever did. <laughs> Oh. Not not and not because it's a good thing or because it's like healthy or and none of that, right? But because right. the journey of addiction and then finding recovery and find and where I am now is so much more grounded and and centered in like authenticity than I ever have been in my life. And that and I so so on one end, yes, it was absolutely tragic and like horrible and it absolutely tore my life to shreds. And on the other hand, like, wow, like, because of that, I found this other thing, which is recovery, which is, for me, a way of living that allows me to be radically honest with myself and others, that allows me to have integrity, that allows me to have community, like, all these things that add so much value to my life that I didn't have before. I And you don't think you would have gotten there without it? I, I think if I would have, it would have taken many, many years and it would have been a lot of years of a lot of misery and suffering for me. How long did it take before you casually did uh, the drug until you were doing it at work in secrecy? I mean, honestly, it was, I did it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Like, this is what I've always been looking for. And I think I'm going to do this like every day. Like, I think I thought, actually thought, had that thought. I'm going to do this every day. And what was interesting about the high of the drug is that it didn't feel out of control to me. Like it felt to me like I just had clarity for the first time. Like I felt like I just felt very clear and focused and like, I'm like, I can function. I can, this is great. Like I just, and I really thought like, oh, everything I've ever heard about this drug is a lie. Like this is fantastic. And and I just knew that I was going to use it a lot. And I think within a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, I was using it every day. I like that. That was, that was it. Very quickly. 
And then were you worried when you were at work or, you know, that people were going to find out? You know, I think at first I really like lied to myself or like, or maybe like, I feel like the drug really lies to you. Like that, that drug in particular is very insidious and it has a way or the addiction to that drug, I should say, because the drug, right, an inanimate object doesn't have any intention, but like the addiction, like my relationship to that drug would lie to me and tell me like, you're fine. No one knows, like you have your shit together. Like, you know, you, you, you can function all that. I think in my own mind at the time, I thought I was functioning and I thought no one knew, but like looking back now and probably like how erratic and crazy I was acting, like I definitely did not have my shit together. And I think a lot more people were catching on that something was up than I thought at the time. For sure. Like, were you an asshole? Yes, to more to the people closer to me, more to like okay. my assistants and the people that were very close to me. I was just very short tempered. Um, I would I would kind of control it with other people, like other like, like people I worked with. Um, I would just try not to talk too much or like try to really regulate my behavior. But more than that, it was just like I mean, I was like a sweaty mess all the time. Like I was always sweating. I probably I lost a lot of weight very quickly. I got turned into a rail. Um, I probably always had dark circles under my eyes. I mean, I would put makeup on and try to cover it up, but like, you know, there was definitely looking back now, I'm like, oh, people definitely knew something was up because I was not acting, behaving normally. And on top of that, like, I always had a very, very, uh, strong and like, you know, super high work ethic. And suddenly I'm like showing up late to jobs. And like, I mean, there was a few times where I didn't show up at all. I literally just didn't show up to work. And like, they had to get another makeup artist. Because you're you, because you're home sleeping, or because you're like no, on a because, bender. Yeah, I'm on a bender, or like, or I'd finally pass out after a bender for a few days, and like, there's no waking me up. And my assistant would come to my house or whatever hotel room I was in, trying to get me up, mm-hmm. and like, it was just impossible. I was like in a coma, you know, like that because you're you haven't slept for days, so it's finally like your body's like you're done, you're shutting down. And so yeah, there was definitely a you know a few times that that happened, and and even with all that happening, like I was still able to kind of like. Lie, like like tell myself like oh it's not that serious it's not that it's not that you know that wasn't that that job wasn't that important or whatever like well you're also it's not what's not good for someone like you you're so talented that you can perform at a lower rate and get by yeah thank you and, and honestly looking back now i'm like how did anyone continue to work with me i don't understand it because i was really towards the end very much a mess like what was what was your rock bottom end where you were like I this something's got to give? I mean, I don't know if you want to share that on yeah, the podcast, I'm happy, but I'm happy to sh- I'm happy to share. So there was a lot of like rock bottoms, right? Um I feel like I feel like there's a lot of kind of like bottoms that one hits in addiction and like in any given time in any of those bottoms, like you have the opportunity to wake up and be like what the fuck am I doing and you know ask for some help and seek some help. But like, it took a really low bottom for me to finally um, make a commitment to changing things. And, you know, um, I ended up, I ended up like actually having a moment where I thought, okay, maybe I should stop using. And uh, things had gotten really bad. I was such a disaster. Um, Somehow I managed to hold on to Gucci as a client, but like, that was it. Like I worked with literally no one else. Um, and you know, and so basically like all my energy just had to go towards making sure I got to those jobs on time and doing that stuff. And somehow I had, um, you know, people working with me that really, you know, helped me do that somehow. Like they just, 
help me to, you know, I don't know, plan for those jobs and all that and like very well. And, um, but when I, when I ended up having a moment where I thought maybe I should stop, I would love to get sober. Uh, and it's just, try. I didn't even think get sober, actually, if I'm honest, I thought I should, I could use a break. That's what I thought. I thought I'll use mm-hmm. a, I'll, I'll take a little break from this. Let me dry out and clean up for like a few months. And I really believed at that time that I would still use, I, I thought I would use math the rest of my life at some level. But at that time I was just like, let me just take a little break and I could probably use it. And I told my mom that I was going to take, I was trying to stop using. And my mom knew this whole time that I was using, like I was never, I never lied to her about it. And there was five years of me barely talking to her, communicating with her and her emailing me, calling me, texting me, always trying to get me to stop. But I just would ignore her for for a long time. So I finally called her and said, Hey mom, I think I'm going to get sober. Um, I'm going to go into a detox here or whatever. And she said, well, why don't you come to San Diego to do that? And, and she said, you know, you have your whole family here. You have some time off, like come home and we can take you to a hospital and you can detox and all that and get healthy and then go back to New York. And so I did, I flew to San Diego and I brought just enough drugs with me to like, you know, make it there and allow myself to You flew to go with them. I flew with them. Yes. And as I did every time. And, um, and I got to San Diego and I was also very much physically dependent on GHB. And that's like a, a medical detox, like it's a physically addictive substance. And I um, went, my mom took me to a hospital in San Diego to try to detox and they didn't know what GHB was. And they were like, oh, if it's just meth, it's not a medical detox, it's like only for alcohol. And they sent me home with like some benzos or something. And so I went back home to my mom's house and took the benzos. And I told my mom, I have to, you have to sedate me because once the withdrawal again, it's going to get really bad. And she, I told her to get me a bottle of vodka. Mind you, I was not a drinker at the time. It was like, I was, you know, one of the hard stuff. So I pretty much downed an entire bottle of vodka and I blacked out for three days and came to in jail. And in those three days, um, apparently I had... Uh, accidentally set my sister's apartment on fire. Oh my God. Yeah. So I was charged. Sorry. I'm probably not supposed to reply like that. I realize all of my reactions are like probably inappropriate. No, it's okay. It's not inappropriate at all. It's shocking. (laughs) Um, And so I came to in jail with an arson charge and then maybe a week or two later. um, You, You set her apartment on fire in anger, not by accident. No, by accident. Oh, so okay. what? So I ended up going to trial. So I don't remember, right? I don't remember any of it. But like, because I literally was in a blackout. Like I came to in jail, and what when I went to trial, like the evidence seemed to suggest that the fire was started because I was smoking a cigarette inside, and it started on on the mattress. So I must have nodded off for a while, and this is what what was explained to me or how it looked according to, you know, the trial and fire experts and all that. But like, I must have nodded off on the, on the bed and a fire started and I must have somehow crawled out of the apartment and the the apartment was on fire. Um, My mom had left for like a, you know, 20 minutes to go get uh, some food for us and left me there alone in my sister's place. And when she came back, the entire apartment was in flames and I was, you know, kind of being re- restrained by seven police officers next to the apartment. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, was any of this it made public? Yes. So 
there was a news camera that came on the scene and did like a whole news segment on it. And so they did a news segment and then that news segment somehow went around like the industry. Like everyone kind of saw it, like a bunch of people saw it and it went, it got back to Gucci. They let me go. And, and after that happened, my agent, you know, kind of called me and said, Hey, listen, like, You've lost Gucci. You don't only really have any other clients. Like this video is very, you know, bad. Like I think we're gonna have to, like, let you go. Like this is not uh, working anymore. And I and I understood. Like at that point, I understood. Like I get it. You know, I I've been an absolute nightmare to work with, and I I understand. So I and were you sober listening to that? No, I was still using. Like okay. even after all that, I kept using for a little, for like a couple more months because it took me a couple months to get into rehab and like really figure things out but i was still using um i don't know maybe i wasn't like super high at that time but i definitely was not sober um and then yeah and then so then that happened and i just thought okay like that's this is my bottom this is like well how much worse does it have to get you know like like what what else has to happen and so i committed to getting sober and so i went into a rehab in san diego and um that rehab is called stepping stone and i was there for five months and then that's a long time it is a long time and then i was in a sober living for a year in san diego that was a sober living that was attached to that rehab that was not like physically attached but they were connected to the rehab um and i was there for a year with 13 other people in the house also addicts in recovery was it yeah. mostly gay people or it was every yeah it was all gay people because stepping stone is a kind of like an lgbtq plus recovery program they must have trouble with people not fucking each other <laughs> <laughs> which well, i it mean is, it is definitely like a very strict rule that we are not allowed to do that <laughs> what about it, after did you bookmark anyone and go okay it's inappropriate <laughs> right now but when we're both sober in three years I, i'm gonna hit you up on instagram i mean i may have thought that about a couple people at the time but also like once i got really sober and got out and was you know completely level-headed like i honestly that was the last thing to my mind yeah yeah I imagine like you had to completely start from scratch about who you are. Yeah. You know, I had to, I think what I had to do was I had to let go completely. I had to go through a period where I was able to let go completely of the identity of Yadim, the makeup artist, Yadim, the success story, Yadim, whatever I thought I was, right. I had to let go of that identity completely. I had to Mm. relinquish that. And I had to find within myself a place of worth without that. That's what I had. That was what I did. That's what I had to do. Because at that time, I didn't know I was going to work. I, I thought I'm never working again. Like, this is it. Like, that's over. And when, at first, when I first realized that, I thought my life was over. And then when I went to rehab, like, begrudgingly, I just kind of thought, I guess I'll give this a try. It's either like this or death. You know what I mean? Like, what else is there? Um, and then once I started doing a lot of work on myself, not only therapy, but like, going to, you know, recovery spaces and meetings and groups and all that, like, and I started being around other people that have the same disease that I have and hearing how similar our stories are, even though the details or specifics are different. Like, I think there was a sense of humility that came over me that like, you know, the identity of Yadim that I had before of this success story, like that, 
as much as it's it, as much as I believe it's okay to accept like success and like to want to be successful, whatever, however you define success and be proud of your achievements. I also think that like I clung to that identity to compensate for my sense of self-worth. And that was, I got my worth from that identity. And so suddenly being in the space of all these other people, humans, right. That are also in recovery with their own stories of addiction. Um, there was a very like humbling experience to suddenly be like all the same, all equal. You know what I mean? Like my, like they didn't care who I worked with or what I did. Like, like to them, like you're just an addict trying to get sober. Like, you know, and that was, I needed that. I needed to understand that and like feel that. But you are so good looking. You're so talented. You have from the outside, everything going for you. What, why, like me looking at you, I would think, why did you have, such low self-esteem i mean i think it's an i think you know some people could tell you that you can hear it you can you know i don't think self-esteem has anything to do with how we look or how you know or how successful we are you know i think some of the most successful people in the world have terrible self-esteem i mean look at the people in power in our planet you know what i mean like these are people that are, a lot of the people in power in our, in our world are people with like deep trauma and emotional wounding that needs to compensate so much with outward success and, you know, whatever that is. And I think any attachment, what I've learned is any attachment to or, or expectation of anything outside of myself to bring me a sense of validation or worth is, is, is already corrupted. It's, I'm, I'm already in trouble when I start getting into that pattern and and it still happens like i still sometimes like even you know now that i'm starting to work again like my ego loves this like, my ego loves that like i'm getting busy and that you know people want to want me on the podcast or whatever um but i have to really actively practice seeing that for what it is like being able to identify when that my ego when that okay, that's my ego that that's what likes that and that's fine and it could be there like it doesn't i'm not i'm not trying to like eradicate it it can be there but i don't have to believe it and i don't and i, mm -hmm. and I, I can understand that's not who i am you know that, that it, i can be separate from that so is work become a trigger in a way not anymore i think in the very beginning when i first started working it was at times not anymore like i'm very grateful and excited that i get to do this again um that i kind of have like you know this second chance um so it's not really a trigger uh, as much as it is a teacher. It's my teacher. There were two quotes in the New York Times article that caught my attention. And you kind of talked about both of them in a very interesting way. And the first one, Mr. Hamza said of you, he's very confident, which really brings a lot to the shoot. He doesn't doubt himself or the intention of a shoot. Then he went on to, and then you went on to say, you only get one shot. It's really exciting. It's scary, but I invite it. I'm into it. <laughs> so do you still believe that you only get one shot? No, not at all. Not one bit. And I also don't believe that we have, that anyone, any creative in any creative field has to make themselves available all the time for everything. Otherwise we lose it. And I think I believed that before. I think I really bought into that narrative before. And I think now it's like the way I see things now is like, if I need to take time to myself, if I need to take a month or two away, like I have no qualms with telling my agent, Hey, I need a break. I'm going to take a couple months to myself. Like I, I'm fine doing that. And, and, you know, and when I feel I need to.
and that's totally okay. And I and if and I may lose some clients, but there'll be other clients that I get. You know what I mean? Like I think if you're mm-hmm. if you're if you're talented and people and you built good relationships, like you, you will be able to work again. You know, and I think um, and I and I really believed at the time when all this first happened that you know when when I first got sober and I was in sober living and all that that I would never work again and that was ended up turning out to be a big lie. You know, I, I got I got to have a lot of people show up for me in the industry. And I mean, it's interesting because like we think of this industry as very fickle and it is like, don't get me wrong. It can be a very fickle industry at times, but also there's really good people that work in this industry. You know, there's also, mm-hmm. there's gems, really good gems that are, that are really good humans that have hearts that, you know, that have also been through their own struggles, you know, either whether addiction or mental health or whatever it is, like, you know, we all have something that we've had to overcome. And I think people want to give someone a second chance and they want to support, we, we, we want to support each other. And I've, I've certainly felt a lot of that support um, coming back into working in this. Is it more fun yes. this time? Yes. So much more fun. Yes. I'm not as worried. Honestly, I'm just not as worried. I'm not trying to bend the whole world. I literally, the way I see things is if it's meant for me, it will be for me. And if it's not, that's okay. Like it'll make space for something else and that's fine. And if it means that there's times where I don't work for a few weeks, like I get to appreciate that rather than be terrified of that. And how do you leave your ego? But when you're on set and doing a job that you're used to rely on that to even like go to battle and do the job. I mean, I think that, I think there is, I think the ego is a tool, right? I think we have it for a reason. It's a tool. Um, we get to use it when we need it. But for me, the trick with the ego is to not let it be in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. To utilize it when I need it, let it give me what I need, and and then be able to say, okay, now step aside. Like I'll I'll take the wheel, you know. Because if I'm just driven by the ego and the ego only, I, I'm, I'm fucked. <laughs> I'm really fucked. Yeah. Are you scared? I'm scared all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the fear has changed in a lot of ways. Like it's not fear of, it's not, it's not fear of like, um, the fears I had before were very different than the fears I have now. You know, the fears I had before were that I'm not enough. I'm not going to make it. How am I going to keep this? Now the fear is not about that at all because I feel like I've been able to cultivate a certain detachment from all of that. Um, I think now the fears are very different. They're more about um, kind of existential fears sometimes I ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're fears that I welcome. And, I'm, and I think my relationship to fear has changed a lot tremendously you know i I see fear now also as a teacher like oh okay this is something that's like coming up for me i get to look at that i get to explore that i get to talk about my therapist i get to meditate on it i get to like really dive into why i have these fears and i get to see what that uncovers for me and that to me is like a vehicle for growth so you go to therapy do you also go to meetings i go to meetings therapy i try to have as many tools in my arsenal as I can. Um, yeah, yeah I, I practice mindfulness, meditation. I, yeah, you know, that when I first got sober, I, you know, went through some ayahuasca ceremonies that were very helpful, which I'm sure. Did you find that to be helpful? 
I'm fascinated with it. Incredibly helpful. I can't even, I can't even put into words what that did for me. Um, and I know it, and it, it's kind of a, a controversial topic in recovery, right? Like there's some very using drugs to get out of drugs. I mean, I wouldn't even call it a drug. I call it, I would call it a medicine because it's really that's that was my experience of it. It was a medicine, and like right, like the whole preparation and the whole context in which this medicine is taken is very different from the context that I use meth in. Like I never went to meth with like an intention and like with like a, you know, a, a healer and like this community that's like, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? There to help have this experience to process some very deep stuff. Like I- I've never come out of an ayahuasca ceremony thinking, Oh, can't wait to do that again. Like it's, I'm like, I'm good. Okay. Like, that's, I'm it's fine. not like more, more, more. Absolutely right. not. Like if anything, you know, the first few, uh, I did it a few times in my first year and, um, and if anything, like when it was time to do it again, like, uh, you know, the medicine woman would call me, she's like, we're having another ceremony. And I remember I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I can, whatever. And she would tell me, why are you running from the medicine? Like, why are you running from yourself? Like, come do the work. And I, I had to really push myself into the discomfort and the fear of doing it. Um, they do it because, in LA, right? Yeah, I didn't do it in LA. I did it in Mexico. And, um, oh. and then one time, I think in San Diego at, at, on, on like a farm, it's always, I've always done it with the same circle, like the same people, kind of like a, the same group. Um, and they do them sometimes in San Diego, sometimes in Tecate, like across the border in Mexico. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, it was. So I have one more question about, yeah. well, probably more, but my big question about addiction for you is, do you think you were born with a predisposition to addiction, like someone who has diabetes or, you know, high blood pressure, or is it from trauma that is downloaded and, and, and that's why you seek the escape? That's a very good question. Um, so some recovery circles would have you believe or would, or would say that addiction is something that some of us just have. Like some, I've heard people before say like, I, I don't know why, but I've just had this since I was born. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that, that's my experience. Um, I think that it's a mixture of things. I think certainly you could have a genetic predisposition if like addiction runs in the family. I think that is a factor, but I don't think it is the end all be all or the, or the only reason. I believe there are a lot of factors and reasons. I certainly believe trauma is one of the leading reasons and leading and highest kind of factors. Really? Yes, absolutely. Which would also explain why so many gay people have addiction issues. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the velvet rage, but it talks about that in, in, in that book, um, which is specifically about, you know, the hetero, the, the, sorry, the homosexual male experience um, in a heteronormative world. Um, but also I read, I recently read, I'm a huge fan of Gabor Mate. Like he is, he just speaks my language and he's, you know, I really, I'm, I'm, he's one of my heroes. And um, he wrote a book recently, a new one called The Myth of Normal. Um, oh yeah. I've heard of yeah. this. The Myth of Normal, I think it's The Myth of, of Normal, um, Healing, Illness, and something in a toxic culture. And it's like it, and in, in the book, he talks a lot about this and he's worked with addicts for many years. Like he is, you know, arguably one of the foremost addiction experts in the world. And, um, and he speaks very much about how trauma informs addiction. Um, and, you know, one of his things that he always says is rather than asking the question, why the addiction, ask the question, 
ask the question, why, why the pain? Like, because addiction does something for us. Like the first question to ask is not how do we get rid of this? But like, what is this doing for this person? Or what is this doing for me that I need? Like what value is it giving me? And oftentimes like, you know, it's, it's, you know, like I said earlier, it gave me a sense of, a sense of power, a sense of, you know, in, kind of invincible, you know, sexuality, mm-hmm. like all that stuff. Like I need I, that stuff I needed at that time because I was hurting, you know, I was hurting and I didn't feel, I felt powerless. And so I think that it's a very complicated question. And I think that, that we're learning more every day. And I think will continue to. And I think that answer for that question that you asked me will evolve over time. But yeah, I think it's a, a mixture of different things for sure. Well, it's like the nature nurture thing is as yeah. old as time, yeah, right? Exactly. And it's usually people are like, it's both. Yeah. you know. And, and that's the thing is like, I one of the things that has helped me a lot in my recovery and then like my spiritual growth is to not look at things so black and white. Like it's not so black and white. Um, right. everything's not so binary. Right. And, uh, and I can be a bit more fluid with my thinking about these things. So you're also non-binary is what you're saying. I'm not non-binary. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not non-binary. Um, that's what I heard. Sorry. I'm just saying what I heard you say, but, you know, um, I want to ask you something really deep now is we play a game on here called tried and true and something new. And I don't know if I prepped you for this, but I ask you a product that, you have tried and true. You've used it forever. It's like always with you. And then if you have something like new to you that you're loving. Um, okay. So a product that I've used for a long time, you said, you mean that it's like a staple. For yeah. Me? That you just swear by that you love. Um, I would say Mac face and body foundation. It's just, it's okay. what I use mo- mo- more than anything. Um, and then a new product. I just got sent a bunch of, makeup by mario like he's a friend of mine mm-hmm. i've known him for many years he just sent me a shit ton of product and i'm loving everything he sent me the lipsticks are incredible the contour sticks are amazing like i have used some of it already can't wait to use more and i'm just really excited to have those in the kit awesome yeah now when you use the face and body in your work that i just have a question yeah do you do you just use it on the face or do you always bring it all the way down I use it mostly just on the face. It depends on what it's for. I use it mostly on the face. There's some times where I'm on a shoot or a show or something where we want like leg coverage and I'll use that on the legs as well and give you kind of buildable coverage. Um, Mm -hmm. But also like if there's specific like very, you know, bruised legs or some scarring, then I'll I'll use a little bit of like concealer on top as well. Um, So it just depends. Sometimes I just want a little sheer tint on the face and I just really sheer that foundation out and like pat it on the face and it looks really nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. I used it on Kate in this film where she had to be by the pool and swim and stuff. And it was incredible. I think they made it for Baywatch. Right. Originally. So there you go. Um, We have a final question. I ask everyone is if you could go back in time and meet yourself, where would it be? And what would you say? I would go back to, Let's see. I would go back to me right before moving to New York. And I would tell myself not to take myself so seriously and not to take it all so seriously. Yeah. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to round this out with a, with a, we'll end on a fun game here. Okay. 
Um, you're on the next season of Drag Race. What is your drag name? Um, Priscilla Simon. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> You've thought about that. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> are you good in heels? Like, do you know how to? Do you know how to walk? And absolutely oh, yeah. not. I don't think I've ever actually worn heels. I might. I have a size 13 foot, so like it's oh, literally wow. impossible for me to find a heel my size. <laughs> yeah. That is so funny. So I um, definitely would fall my flat my face and eat shit. <laughs> you know, I tried them on for the first time really on set. Like when they have all those shoes, they had this big fat drag queen shoe. Yeah. I was on set with Sadie Sink and I just intuitively knew, like I was running in heels. That's I funny. knew how to walk. I was like, what are people talking about? This is, it was just like my faggotry came out. <laughs> it's like your you innate know? faggotry. But it was innate I faggotry. I was yeah. like, this is this is easy. Where's what, put on Liza? Let's go. What I what I will say though is when I was in high school and I went through my like club kid phase, I had some shoes, made some sneakers. I took some sneakers to like a shoe repair place and they added ten inches in like like foam on them and I would wear them to raves and clubs and stuff. And so I knew how to walk in those, but they weren't heels, they were flat. But they were wow. literally ten inch platforms and I used to and they were in a sneaker though, so it's much much more comfortable. I once added ten inches and I couldn't walk for a week. But um okay. <laughs> uh favorite old school song. Um favorite old school song. I'm really in a Shaw Day moment right now. So I would say um smooth operator. Nice. Favorite diva? Uh Madonna and her heyday. Okay. And Barbara Streisand. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, least favorite lip shade? I don't think I have a least favorite lip shade, to be honest, because I think it, like, any, literally any shade can be used at some point somewhere. How about like, unironically? Like, not on a fashion shoot, you could make anything look, like, yeah, I know ironic and cool. Okay. But what about at a woman at the mall? I would say, like, a shit green would be terrible. <laughs> oh okay i don't have yeah, a that... specific color, like name or of color in mind but i would say i would not i would not think that like a woman a, a susie from ohio would not look good in a shit green lipstick shit green yeah she should go for matcha it's yeah, more or like flattering a, or like a mauve you know mm-hmm. so mask for mask or mask for mascara um mask for mascara because I think that mask for mask is so toxic for our community, honestly. It's getting better, though. It is getting much better, and um, thank God. But it's really obnoxious, like, still. Totally. Or, or when, or whatever. Even when you see, like, you know, no fats, no femmes, no age. Like, all that, to me, is just like, God, open your fucking, like, just get it together, honestly. Now it just means you're old. Now you know, because no one under the age of 25 would even go there. So it exactly. just means you're an old queen. Yeah. Um, queen. Craziest place you've you've ever worked or shot? Craziest place? Um, there's a couple. So one, I, we shot on this hillside in Corsica for Vogue Paris. I was there with David Sims and Emmanuel and Paul Hanlon. And we were literally on a mountainside. Crawling up the mountainside shooting. And then I also thought a really crazy experience was um, when I was working for Pat and she did the, she got contracted to do, to create the makeup look for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And we had to fly to Sweden in the middle of a blizzard and work in this little tiny studio in Stockholm with um, 
Pat and David Fincher and Rooney Mara to create these. Oh my God. It's really interesting. It was like a full blizzard going on outside. So fun though. And I love Corsica. It's one of the best, my favorite places I've ever been. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, Most embarrassing song on your phone. Um, I'm in love with the Coco. I don't know it. It's like a hip hop song from two twenty fourteen or something about oh. cocaine. It's about cocaine. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've I, I have stopped listening to anything current after like two thousand eight, which is why I know I'm old. Um, your least favorite direction for makeup? Least favorite direction for makeup? I would say um, this like really blocky, super over shaped. Um, brow that we're seeing, you know, maybe it's kind of fading now, but we were seeing it for a few, few, few years, kind of social media mm-hmm. trend. I, I wasn't a huge fan of that. Laminated, big, thick, super arch brow. Okay. Not into the stenciled brow. No. Um, what is the best and the worst thing about living in San Diego? The best thing is my boyfriend, my family, my recovery community, and how much kind of grounding I have here, my friends. Um, worst thing is that I have to travel to work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you basically go to New York, LA, or wherever yeah, for yeah. Assi- or on assignment. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I leave for like large amounts of time. Like I just left for a month. I'm back for a few days. I leave again on Wednesday for possibly another month. So, yeah. I don't know why I wrote this one. It's like, what the hell? But um, what's your, what's your most common nightmare? My most common nightmare. I don't remember. You know what? Question for a game. I don't, I don't remember my dreams very often, but I would say, I remember, and I haven't had this in a long time, but I remember like years ago, I would have these really strange experiences that I'm not sure if they were dreamed. I felt like I was still awake, but I would suddenly feel this really weird presence next to me. And I felt like I was awake, but I couldn't move. It was a very strange thing. And I've had it happen a mm. few times throughout my life, but it hasn't happened in many, many years. Yeah. Okay. If I could invite three living industry people to a private dinner, they would be living it has to be like fashion or makeup like in that world yeah like in our industry in our industry i would fashion wa- you know yeah. yeah yeah i would want uh you said to a dinner yeah to your okay. you're hosting a dinner yes. for, for three i'd want amber valletta i'd want um who else amber valletta um grace coddington and lotta Volkova. I think that would be a really interesting dinner. (laughs) That would be. um, I'll be the server so I can listen. Perfect. Perfect. Are you still working on that? Anybody want a cappuccino to finish out? (laughs) Um, And then lastly, escape or SWV? SWV all the way. Come on now. Okay. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Come on. Um, Good answers. Um, I have to say that this has been one of the most honest, brave, and compelling podcast that I've done. And I think that it is going to really like just be helpful for anybody, not even just addiction. But when I hear people just speak so honestly, it inspires me to be honest with myself and just that way with others. So I want to thank you 
Yeah, I mean, listen, we work in an industry that is everything's so hidden. You know what I mean? Every all the like kind of the impression of us is so kind of you know um, cal- calculated or tucked or yeah or whatever. Like, and it's just I think it's so refreshing, and I think it's very needed for people to just start getting vulnerable and be more transparent about our struggles. And I hope that it can help someone. You know, whether it's not addiction, mental health, whatever it is, like let's talk about it. It's important. Awesome. And um, let me know when you come to New York. I'd love to um, to see you. Let's do it. I'm leaving on Wednesday. I'll be there for a few weeks. Let's just plan oh, it out. cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you so much and um, have a good night. Thank you. Have a good night. Take care.